Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 20. Are you a storyteller? Do you use the power of narrative and anecdote to enhance the impact of your message? Today's guest thinks you should. Sean Callahan is the author of a brand new book, Putting Stories to Work, and he's an oral storytelling consultant. He helps leaders and businesses discover and tell their stories. Sean believes that storytelling in the modern business environment is a lost art, and he's here to help us rediscover it. Stories can help us connect with people. They can clarify direction, explain choices, demonstrate success, and so much more. In the conversation you're about to hear, Sean, a gifted storyteller himself, talks about why he thinks the ability to tell powerful stories is so important for everyone, individuals, leaders, and organizations. And most importantly, he gives us some incredibly practical advice on how we can all learn to use stories more effectively. Hold on to your hats, ladies and gentlemen. After you hear Sean speak, you will never look at business communication the same way again. I hope you enjoy my story-laced conversation with Sean Callahan. Sean Callahan, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here, David. Great to see you. It's great to have you, Sean. You know, after a few conversations that we've had and the fact that I've read your book, I have high hopes about you today as a storyteller. Do you feel a little bit of added pressure to be a wonderful storyteller? Well, no, I don't think I feel the pressure of being a wonderful storyteller, but I do feel the pressure that I actually tell a story, right, or multiple stories. Uh, the reason being I've, I've gone to presentations where people have stood up, talked about storytelling for an hour and not told one story, right? And, you know, I, I remember going to one at a big conference and this just fellow, he jumped up there and, and he, he did all the sort of declarative information about storytelling. You know, stories are memorable. Stories are, you know, meaningful. They help people connect and engage. And, and he just went on like that and he sort of showed the evidence and all that sort of great stuff about storytelling but need not tell one story, you know. And then right at the end, you know, just... Uh, when he'd finished, his first question from the floor was, can you tell us a story? Right. It seems incredible that someone who's doing a presentation like that would miss such an ob obvious point. Well, I see it all the time. I um, Just yesterday, I was uh, at a big um, breakfast seminar. You know, it was, it was run by the American Chamber of Commerce. And uh, the gentleman talked for 90 minutes and didn't tell a story. And he was talking about storytelling. He wasn't talking about storytelling, but he was talking about things that it would have been, he had heaps of stories. I could tell the guy had phenomenal experience, but it was just not in his way of speaking to actually share a real life example. You know, he wanted to show us the Gartner data and he wanted to show us the McKinsey's three-step model to this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, he wanted to give us the six dot points that showed, you know, X, Y, and Z. That's how he spoke, Right. Relying on data, facts, models, frameworks is, is something that we all do. And you talk about it so well in your book. And I have to admit, as I was reading that book, I, I felt at times that you were talking about me. And I, I learned so much from it, Sean. And, and I, I'm really looking forward to getting into the guts of that. But just to take a, a timeline effect here, I'm really interested as to how you found yourself in the position where you are a storytelling consultant. What is your story? Well, I joined IBM back in the late 90s, right? And at that time, I was taken on to, to, to more or less lead a, a practice around knowledge management, you know, how knowledge flows in organizations. And I was particularly interested in knowledge you couldn't write down right? That tacit knowledge, the, the things you know how to do, but you can't explain to people how you do it. And of course, in that field, stories become a, you know, a key element. It sort of gives an insight into your principles and beliefs. So I started digging around, around stories and I was trying to find in IBM, who knew about stories and storytelling, right? Well, this guy popped up 
that you know became well known and is well known in the space, a, a fellow called David Snowden. And uh, so I shot him an email and I sort of said to him, hey, Dave, look, I'm really interested in this stuff. Uh, I've got some clients I want to show, you know, some things about storytelling and, and knowledge management. Can you send me a video? And he said, look, I can do better than that. I'm coming to Australia. Why don't we set up a, you know, a seminar and, and we can meet and, and I can show you what we do. So he did that. And we did this uh, really big workshop at Old Parliament House in Canberra. And Dave stood there for a, the whole day uh, without any PowerPoint slides. All he had was a, a flip chart and 100 people. And they were hanging off every word he said. And as I was sitting in the back, I was saying, well, how's he doing this? You know, like, this is amazing. And then I started to notice that every time he would make a point, he would tell a little anecdote about, you know, him going to the opera or him, you know, doing some work for a big customer and, uh, and it was this back and forth between the opinion and an experience. And it was these experiences that were drawing people in. So right at the end of that, I just said, right, that's what I want to do. I want to have that guy's job. You know, that's, that's fantastic. And uh, so I, I raced off and I wrote this story. You know, I was, I was so excited. I was working at the tax office on a project uh, around business intelligence. And I wrote this story about our tax office team. And I shot it off to, to Dave. I saw him a few days later and he said, um, oh, that's really great, you know, Sean, you know, getting that to me so quickly. But you know what? You totally missed the point. <laughs> and I went, oh, shit. Right, what's that? And he said, well, he said, I'm not interested in your story. I'm interested in the stories that organisations tell. And so we ended up working together in this, in this group called the, uh, had a very complex name actually. It was called the Kenevan Centre for Organisational Complexity. And it was all about how you apply complexity theory to big organizational issues. And a big part of it was collecting stories, right? So we did lots of, it was like corporate anthropology type projects. We'd go in and we'd collect hundreds of stories. And then we would help people make sense of those stories um, to usually do culture change initiatives. And then I jumped out in 2004 and started Anecdote. And really with the idea of, I guess, the, the thing that we were seeing sliding away from big corporates was the sort of the humanity of organisations. You know, everything was about cubicles and, you know, time sharing and, you know, it just, it just seemed to getting worse and worse. So we thought, okay, when I started, okay, how can I bring more humanity back into these big organisations? We thought, yeah, stories, that's the way to do it. You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. In your book, you write about the inherent difficulty of writing about oral storytelling. Did you find it difficult to write that book in general because of that, that clash of, of what it's meant to be about? You mentioned there that your very first mistake when you entered this world of storytelling was to write one down. Yeah, yeah. It is. Well, to get the real feeling for what an oral story sounds like, you sort of got to start to um, be able to spot them in the field, you know, in the wild. And when you start spotting these stories, you start to realise that they're not like Hollywood stories. They're not beautifully crafted. They're not um, these amazing, you know, sort of, you know, sort of pieces of work, if you like, you know, artistic pieces of work. They're short and sharp. They've got concrete details in them. But most importantly, the good ones, you know, you asked before, you know, about good storytelling, the good ones help you see a picture, Right. So, you know, when I was telling you about Dave, you know, people probably have a picture in their head. There he Absolutely. is standing standing in front of the audience. You Absolutely. Know? And that's that's what you're after because our visual memory is so much better than just about any other type of memory we have, right? We just have a great sense of that. I've, I've heard you say that there's a hierarchy of storytelling. There, there are stories that happen. There are yep. stories that you can see happening because of the way someone's telling you. And there are stories that you can feel happening. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. And, um, you know, if you're trying to find good stories, I think you have to be in tune with that, right? So if you see them, you hear a story and you can see it happening, you go, okay, that's a good one. I'm going to jot that down. But if you can feel a story, right? I came across this uh, story which I could feel it. So to put hairs, you know, sort of standing on my, my arms, you know, standing up and I thought, Holy smokes, that's, I've got to remember that story. And it's just about this inventor, right? He was, um, he was coming up with a new circular saw 
that would stop so fast that it wouldn't cut you if it, it contacted uh, flesh, right? So he'd been working on it for years, and up until that point, he was using sort of hot dogs as his tester. And then, you know, this was the day that he had to use his own body. And so he looked at his fingers and he went, okay, which finger can I do without? And he picked his little finger on his left hand and he had the saw gun, you know, hundreds of thousand RPMs at a time. And he just closed his eyes and just pushed his finger towards the blade. And it just went, ka-dunk, you know, just absolutely stopped. Like the same sound as it always. He looked at his finger, not a scratch. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so when I heard that, I went, oh, you know, like I could feel that. What a great story. So, you know, then the question is for a a business storyteller, why would you tell that story? Right? What would be the point of that story? I know. What sort of jumps to mind for you, David? You know, like if there's a, uh, you know, you think about that story, uh, what sort of lesson or idea could be illustrated from that story? Oh, trusting the product that you've created, uh, a proper process of testing. You wouldn't go straight to your finger. You've got to use (laughs) the sausage first. So we need a fairly robust process of testing in that one. Yeah. Okay. So imagine you're, you know, in front of a a group of uh, engineers who are working on some new gear and, you know, they want to rush it out the door and, and there's some questions about testing, right? Well, imagine if you're standing there as the manager. So, guys, it's so important that we go through the testing product, you know, process. You know, if we do it right, we'll have happy customers. For example, you know, and then he tells that story. They will feel it, right? They will get it, right? He, that's a success story. He might even also have a, a story of failure in his back pocket as well where they didn't do it. Or he did lose a finger. That's right. Exactly. You know, when you were telling that story, I had that terrific effect that you mentioned in your book about anticipating what was coming next. It was such mm-hmm. a fantastic story. I felt like I almost knew what was coming next when he was testing it on the sausages. I, I knew where it had to end. And as you were telling that story, I was anticipating it. And and you you mentioned in your book that that my own emotions and the the, the patterns in my brain would be mimicking your patterns as the yeah. storyteller. And that's the effect of a great story that you get by emotional buy-in from the listeners. And, you know, some researchers showed this very nicely. They actually uh, took a, a young woman who had gone to a prom, actually, you know, uh, in, in the US, and she told the story of her prom night, and they put her in an MRI scanner. And as she was telling the sto- story, they were recording her sort of brain patterns. And then they would take the recording and then they would put other people in those uh, uh, MRI uh, scanners, and they would see the brains actually sync up. But here's the thing. So I read that article. I read that research article. And I went, this is amazing. But the guy didn't really mention stories, right? He was, he was talking about just communication. So I sent an email to him. I said, did you think of um, you know, comparing it to what would happen if it was a non-story? If you read a textbook. Yeah, that's right. If you read a textbook, you know, would you have got – and he wrote, he wrote back to me and said, oh, yeah, we didn't really look at that, but um, – my, my estimation, it would be, right? It would have that. Now, the thing that stood out for me was that the, there's not that much research, you know, really robust, robust research in this space. He could have easily made that comparison and that would have been great storytelling research, right? It was pretty good storytelling research, but it would have been great storytelling research. And that's the thing I'm, I think we're missing at the moment, you know, some more very in good empirical studies, you know, experiments that show these things. So you've touched upon it as you've been talking so far, but can you talk really explicitly about why being a good storyteller is so important for us as leaders in an organisation? Well, and probably the most important thing is inspiring action, right? Uh, it's in the word, emotion. It's the motion. You're trying to get people to move. You're trying to you know, get them to jump up and do something. And it turns out, you know, that we don't really do it based on logic and rationale and, you know, working out the pros and cons. We have to have a feeling, you know, and we have to match it with our own past experiences. It turns out uh, that uh, most of our decisions are based on our own experiences. And it makes sense, right? You know, you, if you had a bad experience, you're going to avoid it. If you have a good experience, let's do more of it. So storytelling, if you can't give someone an experience firsthand, the second best thing is to tell them a story and give, it, give them the experience vicariously, right? My business partner, Mark, uh, Mark Schenk, 
you know, he had this experience at a big engineering firm he was working with. Uh, they were trying to get uh, the CEO interested in communities of practice, you know, this idea of getting like-minded people together to learn from each other. And this company had communities of practice, but they wanted to get more resources from the, the executive team. So the strategy was whenever they bumped into the CEO, they would tell them a story of how the communities of practice made a difference, right? So essentially what they were doing is they were building their experience of their executive in this vicarious way. Anyway, the first story he heard, he just you know, flipped it off. He wasn't interested. Second story, still not all that interested. Third story, he, it was a story about how the Defence Department had come to this engineering firm and asked for an estimate of the number of people who use this particular type of software. Anyway, they threw it out to their uh, community practice. They got the answer back in a day, shot it back to the Defence Department. And when, we told the, uh, when Mark told the CEO, he's going, what, you're saying that we know more about the Defence Department in this area than they do? And he went, yeah, yeah, we have this thing called community practice. It works like, oh, tell me more about this community practice. You know, like all of a sudden he was interested and there was a, a move towards, okay, let's see how this works. So it's about, I think that's the, the, the two key things, giving people experiences they don't have so they can make decisions and inspiring people to take action because it's based on some emotion right, that gets them going. I'm going to ask you in a little while to, to break down the skills that we need as leaders to, to be a good storyteller and the different types of stories, because you're very clear in your book about the different types of stories we can use for, for different effects within the organization. But before we get there, I just want to talk about this idea that stories predate language. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that early humans were telling stories through gestures and mimes before we even had language. So storytelling is an inherent part of humanity. Why then do we need you to go into an organization and teach people how to do it? What's happened? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, you know, in the, I find that fat, that was the most, one of the most fascinating things that I discovered in doing the research for the book, because you hear people say it quite often. They'll say things like, um, oh, you know, st stories are so embedded in our DNA, you know, they, they, people say that. But I want to know how embedded. And essentially what, what, what it shows is that there was this, there's some point in our evolution where we, we start cooperating with each other, right? And that's the key thing. You know, we, when we cooperate to do that, you need to communicate with someone else to sort of say, hey, I've got the branch, I'm pulling it down, the bananas are coming down. Look, why don't you grab the bananas and then bring them over to me and we'll share them, right? You know, that, that's the basis of it, right? Uh, well, together we can bring down this big beast instead of each of us chasing these little beasts. Little beasts, exactly, exactly right. But of course, this predates language, so they'd have to do it through gestures. And and of course, it's storytelling becomes the next thing that they do because it's uh, reflecting on what happened during that day. You know, oh, you know, remember the time we we chased the beast, and you know, we did this, and we did that, and we made a mistake. God, two guys got killed there. Look, we don't want to do that again. Let's not do that again. Yeah, but. In terms of the, you know, I guess, you know, so this natural thing that we do, how do we, how have we lost it in organisational settings? Because I, I ask people at the beginning of my workshops, I say, how many people here are storytellers, right? Hardly anyone puts their hands up. And if they do, it's just like a half hand, you know. So I'm a but, bit of a storyteller. I'm a bit of a storyteller. But, but when I remind them what it's like when they go down to the cafe or if they go uh, and chat with some friends or they're in the corridor... It's like one story after the next. It's just nonstop. But when they come into a meeting room and there's a PowerPoint deck and there's a group of people expecting them to perform in some way, all the stories seem to disappear. And it's, I think it's a cultural thing that's just developed over years and years of, of how we operate in business. Um, I think it's probably the Frederick Taylor, you know, mentality of efficiency and effectiveness and you've got to be authoritative and, you know, to the point the irony, of course, is that people say things like, look, we don't have time for stories. You know, just get to the point. Just give me the facts. And then they talk for 15 minutes about, you know, <laughs> they waffle on when one small story of five minutes could have got the point across. And would have been so much more memorable. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Exactly. So I think there's a cultural thing. I'm now seeing organisations who are investing in, you know, getting stories back into their business. And so it becomes part of just the way they communicate. And it hardly 
it hardly has any impact in terms of, gee, this feels weird or anything like that, you know, it does because it is so natural, but you have to develop it as a habit, right? And I think that's the, the key thing. How do you develop storytelling as a habit of communication uh, when you're in an organisational setting? And you give us some, some really good steps about how to do that in the book. I, I just want to reflect on my experiences there when we talk about the culture of business and organisations. I started my career in education and it's a, it's a much softer environment than a lot of corporate settings. If you were looking at Herman Brain, you would suggest that it's a very red kind of an organization, whereas businesses can be very blue and green, very numbers and process driven. And one of my early learnings, which I, I think turns out to be an incorrect learning, when I came into the business setting, I felt as though there was no room for stories. There was no room for talking about people it was all about facts and figures, talking through models and looking at things through frameworks. In fact, I remember reflecting to a mate early in my transition from the, the school, the education sector to the private sector. I said, it's a bit like, you know, when you go down and kick a footy with your mates, you can just relax and, and knock it about all the way up to the other end of the spectrum where you're in an NRL game. I said, I feel like in the corporate setting, there's no kicking the footy bound with your mates. Every conversation is like an NRL game, even if it's just a bump into you in the hall. We don't kick the footy around. We have a very structured refereed NRL game, and then we move back to our, our desk. That was my learning, and it turns out, I think, that that was incorrect. And, and I think for a time, it beat out of me the desire and the value I used to have in telling a good story and, and relating to someone as a human. Yeah, look, I think... People, when they hear, oh, you know, we're going to share stories, that it has to be some sort of tear-jerking, you know, emotional, you know, sort of a tale. And, of course, it doesn't have to be that at all. You can, you can do your absolutely top-of-the-line AFL, you know, sort of totally refereed story, but you, you, you're telling it about something that's happening in the business. It just has to have a, a narrative structure, right, for it to have the benefits of storytelling. So, for example, you, you could be in a... I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a specific example. So I did a project for a company in the US that go into big department stores and they kind of just keep a track of how products are selling, the price of products, and then they get all that information and they sell it to institutional banks so that banks can sort of decide whether they should buy more stock in that company or sell their stock or whatever they might do. So it's a, it becomes a financial report. And... To do that, they had to tell the story so that the analysts understood what was going on as quickly as possible, right? Um, now, they, they could do that by just telling these little stories. So these are very data-oriented, short, sharp stories. And it would be things like three months ago, Target introduced a, uh, a new line of, of clothing around activewear. But in the last month they haven't been making enough room on their floors for the active wear line to actually be sold. It's being caught in a corner and they're not actually making the most of that particular opportunity. If they were only to sort of throw out some of their own older lines and bring out the active wear line, there would be an, a, a massive increase in the return through that part of the business. That's the opportunity. So that's a little story, right? For a business person, that's a story they want to hear. They want to know what's going on. So it's data-driven, and you can add numbers to it. In fact, numbers are absolutely vital to make a, a story uh, very plausible. Have you ever considered using the podcast format to deliver training and development programs to your people? Flexible, cost-effective, convenient, and incredibly engaging. Talk to David today about tailoring a program to suit your needs. You mentioned before, and you speak a lot in your book about the small S up against the big S stories. And big S stories are blockbusters that Hollywood tells. They have plot and dialogue and different characters and drama. You encourage people to tell small S stories, to not try and replicate what big storytellers do. And your, the name of your company, Anecdote, kind of suggests that. It's those small little bite-sized pieces. Can you elaborate for us a little bit more about the difference between those small S stories and the big S's and why we should use the small ones? 
Yeah, well, I mean, if you take it from the, say, the big S end, I mean, one of the things that is very prevalent uh, for people who've come from that, it's usually people from uh, maybe the acting or screenwriting um, who have got that sort of creative um, perspective. They're, they're enamoured, particularly Americans, they're totally enamoured with this idea of the hero's journey, right? And in, so far that they'll even define a story as a hero facing a problem and overcoming that problem. That to them is a story. There's nothing else that could be a story to them. Now, I can tell you examples of things that don't fit that, which are still stories. We'll come to it in a minute. And so as a result, they have this quite complex, uh, you know, they have to ask questions around who is the who is the hero and who is the villain and what is the inciting incident and, um, you know, what is the reversal of fortune and the three challenges and, you know, when do they step over the, uh, you know, the threshold of to the journey and, you know, like it is so complex and so messy that it actually gets in the way for leaders to actually just tell stories. Now, if you go to the other end of the spectrum, the smallest end, it's literally what happened yesterday that makes a point. You know, I was down in the factory, I was chatting to Jack, and he was showing me uh, a new thing he'd done with the, um, you know, the safety uh, systems there, you know, on, on one of the... Um, you know, one of the pieces of machinery. Um, but he sort of, she pointed out to me that if we did this for the 30 machines, our downtime would halve. And I went, oh, my God, you know, we're so focused on safety and here we are missing out on that. Like that could be the big insight, right? Now, I go and tell that story to the, um, you know, the CEO. The next thing you know, there's action happening. There's changes occurring, right? These are the smallest stories. But to do that, you have to go and find them. It's a bit like, you know, Tom Peters used to talk about management by walking around. You know, this is his, was his big thing back in the 80s. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to get out there and walk around and actually see and hear these things happening because that becomes your repertoire. Yeah, so smaller stories, you just have to get good at spotting them. And I think that's the, the key skill. And in the book, I, I give a very basic framework for spotting stories. I sort of say that, you know, story spotting is really about listening for a couple of things that give you an insight whether it's a story or not a story. And the first thing you hear is, um, is a time marker, right? Someone will say, oh, I was in the factory yesterday. You know, yesterday's the time marker. Or it uh, could be, oh, yeah, on Tuesday morning I was, as I was walking into work, you know, again, that's the time marker. Anyway, as soon as you hear that, you go, yeah, this is a story I'm about to hear. Of course, you know, the, the classic archetypal time marker is once upon a time, right? doesn't work so well in business. And if it's not a time marker, it's a place marker. So, you know, sometimes it's, um, oh, you know, I was in the boardroom and, and David walked in. So that's the beginning of a story as well. So that's the first thing I'm listening for. You know, is this a story? Does it have a time marker? Is it, you know, kicking off? And then are, are there a series of events? This happened and this happened and therefore that happened and because of that this happened. You know, have causal, you know, cause and effect, you know, in these events. And then the third thing I'm listening for is people, you know, or characters is more broadly, but in business storytelling, it's people. And, you know, the names are a giveaway for people. Dialogue is a giveaway. In fact, dialogue is really interesting. Dialogue can only be delivered inside a story, right? So if you hear dialogue, which, by the way, we do all the time in our storytelling, you know, back and forth, we'll sort of say uh, things like, uh, oh, yeah, I, I caught up with uh, Barbara yesterday. You know what she said to me? And then we just do the Barbara dialogue. It's like so natural, we don't even think about it. So these, once you hear and listen for these three things, you know, you're starting to go, yeah, that's a story. But the thing that's missing out of that definition is for it to be a story, something unanticipated has to happen. Something that when you hear it, you go, ah, oh, right. And um, so I think that's the, they're the key elements. And for it to be a business story, it has to have a business point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's that's the overlay, if you like. But in terms of story spotting, so when I, I get totally frustrated when I hear people say things like, oh, yeah, we've we've got a story. Yeah, our, our story is pretty clear, Sean. And I go, oh, fantastic. Uh, what's your story? Yeah, look, our story is about, um, you know, sort of growth and excellence in product development. You know, we're, you know, we're really here to make a difference in people's lives. And they're really earnest and they're looking at me like I'm, you know, like they've nailed it, right? <laughs> and I just have to say to them, that's not actually a story. That's just a perspective, you know. 
A bad mission in, statement. A bad mission statement. Yeah, exactly. So, once you, by the way, I say to people that this is a curse as well as a blessing because as soon as you get this habit of spotting stories, you start to see them everywhere. Right. Right? It's like, you know, when you decide to buy a new car and all of a sudden you decide, yeah, I'm going to have this particular make and model and all of a sudden that new car seems to be everywhere around you. Absolutely. It's, with this. it's the same thing, right, all of a sudden. And you start judging people's presentations. You sort of go, oh, there's a story, there's a story. Oh, no stories for a long time. That's a bit boring. Uh, there's another story. You know, like, so I have to say to any of your listeners that, you know, be careful about this because uh, on the one hand, it's absolutely vital for you if it be a business storyteller. But on the other hand, you know, you may, you may start to begin to think you're seen too much. And you really believe in practicing your stories, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do. And, and that's how you remember them as well, right? Uh, my little method for remembering stories, because the best stories are the ones that you can do off the cuff, no preparation. They just come to mind. Because they're relevant. Well, they're relevant. That's yeah. right. And the way you get those stories in your head, a little method I use, is when I come across a story that uh, I like, I um, will typically either ring my business partner up or ch chat to him in the office and I say, look, I've got this great story. I'll tell you. So I tell the story. And then I say to him, so what does that story mean to you? And Mark will say, oh, you know, that means uh, small things can make a big difference, just like I did with you, David, on that uh, on the finger story. And and what's what we're doing, and then I'll throw in what it means to me, and what I'm doing is kind of tagging the story. So, you know, well, I now have this idea that whenever I talk about testing, that story will just pop in my mind. So you've been a... You'll be in a conversation six months down the track. You haven't thought of that story for six months. And then someone will say, um, oh, yeah, you know, maybe we can just push this through testing pretty quickly. And you'll just go, bam, you know. Sausage story. Sausage story, here we come. But you, you have a choice then to tell it or not tell it, yeah. right? So that you're in total control. But that memory only happens if you retell that story a few times. And I find once you've told it about three times, it's locked, locked in. Right. Right. It's, it's a quite amazing. And, um, and they've shown why stories are so much more memorable than facts alone it's because with a story you're connecting lots of different neurons um, so it becomes a much more complex web. So if one neuron gets broken, there's other neurons that keep that story together, right? So you might forget one element of the story, but that doesn't matter. It's not enough to kill the whole story. It's like, like I can't remember the name of the inventor of that, of that saw, but it doesn't really kill my story. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so there are bits that will drop off, but the story sort of t stays intact. But if I was just trying to remember a fact or a, you know, an opinion, that li likely I'll just lose the whole thing. I bet some of the listeners like me were sitting there listening to you talk, thinking, well, that's good for you, Sean, but I'm terrible at remembering things. But you've yeah. just helped me understand that, if I, if I have a system and, and I get good at noticing them, and if I do get good at noticing, they'll be everywhere and I'll have so many stories, but then it's up to me to practice them. And after I've told them two or three times, three times you think, then, then that story is locked in and I'll be able to recall that and I'll be better at telling it because I've practiced it a few times and my repertoire over time will grow. And That's the more it. I take the opportunity to tell the story when it's relevant, uh, the better I'll come at, at remembering to do that, at, at seizing on that cue and, uh, and enjoying the rewards of, of actually telling the story. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, to build that habit of, of storytelling, they say the habit forms when you have a trigger for the habit. You then, you know, sort of run the, you know, the actual activity and then you get a reward. So for storytelling, I find a good habit, the way to build the habit, you've got to find a good trigger. And I find that the good trigger is when you find yourself being really opinionated about something. So you're standing there and you're going, you know, passion is a crazy idea. You shouldn't seek your passion. You should be just good at what you do and your passion will come later. When you find yourself being opinionated like that, um, you should be going, okay, what's an example? You know, what's an example that backs that up? What's a story I can tell? And then at first you won't have one. You'll go, I can't think of a single story. And that's when you should go, okay, I've got to find a story, you know, to back that up. You know, you might dig around in your own sort of history to try to find it, or you might hear a story that you think, yeah, that's a nice one to put that in perspective. And the reward, 
Well, that's the audience's response to your story. And the super reward is when you hear someone else tell your story. Ah, yes. That's when you know you've got it. (laughs) You told a story before about the factory worker who thought of a great way to be efficient and to save their downtime and then going to tell the CEO and then that that would see some action. As you told that, I thought, you know, the natural thing for so many of us to do, to enjoy that story and and because we lived it, we were convinced by it and we've got some new information to go on to, the natural thing for us to do would be to convert it into business speak and think, what are the numbers and the facts and figures I can go and tell the CEO? And, and your message very clearly is that that's a mistake. You don't need to convert those things. In fact, most people will, will far more enjoy the story and remember the story and be convinced by it. It seems as though in so many contexts, it's a reflex to turn it into dot point framed numbers. Well, I don't think it's probably as black and white as that though, David, because really you have to combine both. But what I would say is, say for example, I want to make a more formal pitch to the CEO. I would walk into the CEO and sort of say, look, we have this great opportunity here. Let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. And I'll tell the story first. And then after I've told the story, it might be, it might be two or three stories, I would follow that with all the data and the argument and the, the next steps and the plan and all that stuff that people expect to be in a business, but the action and comes from the emotion. You know, So I've got to start that off. Now, if I flip it around the other way, say imagine I, and this is the standard way presentations are done. People will start off with all their argument and their reasoning and uh, their cleverness in terms of, you know, how they put everything together. And right at the end, they'll say, now, let me give you some examples. But because of a, a little quirk of human psychology called the confirmation bias, if we don't agree with that reasoning at the front, we'll discount the whole thing. We'll just go, no, no, that's not how it works. Because that's a push strategy. You're pushing, pe- you're pushing that information at your audience. And what do they do? They push back, Right. Right? And they're thinking, I don't know if you're like this, David, but I am. You know, if someone's sitting there going, this is the way the world works, I'm thinking of an example that, that discounts that. Right? It will just pop in my head. I can't help it. You know, I'm going, well, I've seen three examples where that doesn't happen. So this, what you're saying, is bullshit. Right? And, and so then they're up against it. Whereas if they start off with a story, a story is a pull strategy in the sense that you sort of say, oh, you know, this happened the other day. I was down there. And the person listening, they're not fighting you with a second opinion or another experience. They're going, oh, really? Did that happen? Oh, that's really oh, interesting. What happened and next? And they're just, yeah, what happened next? And they're just pulling it towards them. And, and it's almost like a Trojan horse because as they're pulling in the story, they're pulling in the idea as well. That's right. And then you give them the, you know, the, 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 the facts and figures and, uh, you know, the reasoning and the great argument. I'm sitting here wondering... Does everyone respond as well to a story as you're making out? You know, in my line of work, I spend a lot of time thinking about people types and the way the different communication styles and and different thinking styles of people. In MBTI, for example, we have intuitive thinkers and sensory thinkers. In Herman Brain, we have people who are all about big pictures and, and emotions. And then we have people who are all about numbers and process. And in DISC, we have dominant types who want short, sharp communication. They want to be in charge. And then we have people who are, who are steady and, and, um, and are more likely to, to want to indulge in a story and connect as a human. So my question is, do all of those different types appreciate stories as much as we're making out here today? Well, the short answer is yes. But let me expand on this, right? Because the key, one of the key things is... So everyone appreciates and loves stories, regardless of how analytical you are, how technical you are, how, you know, the different communication types, it does, they all seem to uh, appreciate a story, but different types of stories. And I guess this is the, the key thing. First of all, everyone likes these, likes stories, but they don't like the word story. They hate it, especially in business. You know, if you stand in front of a group of people and say, as a leader, and you sort of go, guys... I just want to share a story with you. You know, you know, if you do that in a bank or in a finance company or a, 
engineering firm, you'll have everyone rolling their eyes going, oh, my God, do we have to – what is the guy thinking of? You know, like they are so discount what you're going to say next, regardless of how good it might be. But if you say, guys, something really important happened a couple of days ago I want to share with you, they're all going, well, what happened? Yeah. You're still going to tell them a story, yeah. right? Now, say if you're talking to some real technical wonks, you know, they, these guys just love data and they still want to tell the story. They, they've got their graph in front of them of a time series. They want to know what the story was, what happened. Well, this, this occurred and that occurred and then there was a change here and then that came as a result. Uh, Gary Klein, the psychologist, he sort of said that uh, insight is when you unexpectedly come to a better story. And this is what these guys are after. They've got a story in their head about how the world works and they're looking for a better story. You know, that's what analysis is all about. I um, uh, had a lovely uh, phone call from a customer that I worked with who was from CSIRO's Maths and Stats, right? So I taught the Maths and Stats researchers storytelling. Now, if there could be a group more technical, more into the data, this would be the group. Well, she was head of communications and we ran a program and it, you know, it went really well. And about three years later, she resigned from her um, position and she, so they, they threw her a morning tea, as they do, you know, when you're leaving. And she said the number of researchers that came up to her and sort of said, you know, the thing that I really remember is it made all the difference is that storytelling thing you did with us, you know, three years before. So, so the, the short answer to your question, you know, is if it doesn't really matter what your audience is, but you have to change your stories. So technical people want to hear technical stories. Sales people want to hear sales stories. Marketing people want to hear marketing stories, you know. And there is a slight different language in the type of stories that you tell, but they all love the narrative structure. They want to know because the, the structure gives you an answer around why something happened, right? And once we know why something happened, that protects us a little bit into the future because we can now predict how the future is going to unfold. This is, this is vital knowledge for humans, especially since we're such social creatures. So a whole bunch of people are listening to this thinking, all right, Sean, I'm convinced. You, you've convinced me that telling great stories is a really powerful tool and I'm probably not very good at it. What are the very practical steps I can take to put me on the path to being a more effective storyteller in the business setting, at home, with my friends, so that I engage, entertain, and, and convince people? Yeah, well, it's, it's really around developing four different kind of disciplines, if you like. And the first discipline is around discovering stories. And we've touched on some of the elements of that in terms of you've got to spot stories. But you really have to put yourself in places where stories happen. You think in your business, you know, where do the stories get told? Or where do the remarkable things happen? You know, I used to work in IBM. The one of the places that stories happen were in the sales calls, right? And if you weren't in the sales calls, you're kind of out of the loop. So you want to be there. You want to hear what's going on. That gives you stories. Um, if you're in a manufacturing uh, business, you want to get out to the manufacturing plants. If you're in a, a marketing business, you want to be in amongst where marketing things are happening so you can see interesting things happen so you can tell those stories. So discovery is really about putting yourself where the stories are. And you will know. I mean, the other place where stories are told is where anyone eats. You know, if you go to places where they sit down to eat or have a drink or have a smoke, that's where you'll find stories as well. Absolutely. So, you know, you've got to go to those places. The second discipline is, is really about remembering stories. And I gave you that little short technique I use to, to remember stories. But in addition to that, there's two other things you could probably do if you're starting out. I would, I would grab myself a notebook and as I, you know, bumped into stories, which I think, ah, that could be a good one to tell later on, I would uh, just jot enough to remember the story. Now, the trick here is not to write the story out because, remember, we're, we're focused on oral storytelling. Written stories is kind of like a different world. You become um, a slave to the text if you write something do. out. Yeah, you think you have to tell it that way. Yeah. And the beauty of about oral stories, you can tell the long version, the short version, the, the version angled at this point or the version angled at that point. But if you have it written down, you sort of have it set in stone. 
The irony, of course, is you do it in dot points, which seems to be quite ironic for me. Do that and and come up with a title. I I like to use what what I call the friends method of titling stories, and friends from the TV series. Films, oh, okay. Right. My I have a family of women in in this household, and so friends gets played quite often. So I get to notice these things. Friends still gets played at your house. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They get played and. Uh, you know, the reruns are, are working very well. But the, the method that I noticed that the Friends guys used to, to, to name all their episodes, they say the one where, where Joey goes to the refrigerator, the, you know, the one where, you know, dot, dot, dot. So I think if you use something like that as the, the titling method for your stories, that's, that's actually quite useful because, again, it's focused in on an action. So do that. And, but here's the thing. It's not just the stories you find out in the field and your stories. But I tell you, one of the great sources of, of stories are uh, business books. Now, for a business person, you should be going through business books and going, wow, that's a great story. I can use that. I mean, I'm just finished reading uh, Adam Grant's uh, new book. He's a, a professor at uh, Wharton Business School called Originals. And you know, he's a fabulous writer, actually. You know, and he just has one story after the next. You know, it's, um, And if you're looking around for stories to tell you know, that would be the place to go to find business books that are full of stories. And they all are now because ever since Malcolm Gladwell, you know, wrote The Tipping Point, people have recognised or business writers have recognised that, you know, people want to read books that are full of stories. So that's another great source. So you've got the, the, the idea of, um, you know, first of all, discovering your stories, uh, remembering them, and then sharing them. The discipline here is, I would say, is you start small. You, you start to, you go to a meeting and you just share an example that makes a point. It has to have a business point. And I'll tell you, this is the way in which you tell your story. First of all, share what the point is in just one sentence statement. Then share your story. So you might walk in and say, guys, it's so important that we, we do our testing in a rigorous fashion. You know what, I, I came across a great example of this. And then you tell the story of the sausage man, right? And that way, when people are listening to the story, they know where, where you're going, but you don't give away the punchline. And as a result of that, they will hang in on, on the story, you know, because they've got, they're really judging your story from two perspectives. First of all, they're judging it from the perspective of plausibility. Did this really happen? Could this really happen? And second one is relevant, especially in business. They're going, is this relevant? Why am I listening to this? And if you can tell them right up front, this is the relevance of what I'm about to tell you, they will listen, you know, so intently in terms of what you're saying. And then finally, and probably this is a really important one, especially when you get to this um, this point of, you know, sharing stories on a regular basis, you've got to know when to refresh your stories. When your stories of outlive their uh, usefulness or uh, you start telling the same story to the same people. You know, people hate that. You know, so you've got you've to just get used to this idea of working out, okay, when's the point where you have to say, okay, that story's, you know, it's run its race. It's time to, to, to find another story that, you know, makes the same point. You make the point that it's important to do all four of those things in equal measure. That if you're not practicing telling your stories, if you're not sharing them, then there's no point in doing the discovering and remembering. If you're too busy telling your stories and you're not finding new ones, you will get caught boring your audience or running out of things to say. And, and indeed, if you forget to refresh and even retire some of your stories, you, you will fall into those traps that you mentioned just then. I, I'm really interested in that last part, the, the ability to refresh and, and retire some of your stories, because... It takes a tremendous amount, well, maybe not a tremendous amount, but a, a, a certain level of emotional intelligence to do that, to be aware of the feedback that you're getting from your audience, doesn't it? And, and I've certainly come across people who, you know, some of the storytellers who have come through my life tended to tell stories where they were the hero of every story they told. And I can't imagine they were doing a very good job of reading the audience when they were telling those stories because the audience was kind of just, you know, lost for words. Here we go again. You're telling us another story about this. They were lacking that ability to read their audience. So that phase of the process is, is a really important one, isn't it? 
Oh, it's vital, absolutely. And um, it's so true, too, that um, some people are totally oblivious of the stories that they're telling and the impact it's having, you know, positive or negative. And I think one of the things you need to get in place very quickly is, and I suppose it's like any being any good leader, you need people who can give you honest feedback who can sort of say, you know what, you know that story you've been telling? I mean, everyone's just rolling their eyes at it. You might not notice it, but... And for you to then take that on board and change it up, I mean, that's that's the key thing. And so I think, you know, getting getting that feedback happening early is an important element of it. But the other thing too is you, there are some stories you will get bored of. Bored right? telling. Bored telling. Yeah. And it comes across right. when, you're, when you're bored of a story. Yeah. So that's when you hear yourself and when you think, to yourself, oh, I have to tell this story again, you know, that's when you should be going, okay, time to retire that. There's a there's a famous uh, comedian who I just love, uh, Louis C.K. Have you come across him? I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, really, if you go check him out on um, on YouTube, if you want to see his stand up, but he had a career which was going quite well, and then it hit a plateau, and he realised that he was more or less telling the same stories over and over again, and he decided at that point the only way he'll become better as a stand up comic is that every season he would throw out all of his jokes and start from scratch. And when he did that, his career went from this plateau to an absolute skyrocket. And I've got a feeling that your storytelling ability has the same, had the same sort of trajectory because, you know, once you've thrown out old ones, you start to know, okay, what is a good story? What does work? You know, you're a bit more uh, discerning in picking your stories. And so the next lot that you pick you know, you're going to be naturally better stories. And the next lot after that are going to be better again. And so, you know, it just starts to give you a, um, a process of improvement. However, it's hard to retire ones you love. And telling stories, the, the act of practicing telling stories, it's also important at that point to read your audience, isn't it? They help you learn how to tell that story better. The part where they're excited and they're leaning forward with anticipation, you know, that's a good part. And yep. you could you could emphasize that part next time you 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 tell that story. When they're looking a bit bored and wanting it to move on, you know that that's a bit of filler. And next time I should probably cut that out and tell the story in a in a different way. So reading your audience is really important for a number of these these points along this process. Oh, that's right, that's right. And you know sometimes something will happen, and you'll tell the story and you miss out a vital bit. Yeah, and you realise they don't quite get what you're talking about, or they get it in the wrong way. I had this experience giving a presentation to IBM. So they invited me back to give a talk on storytelling. And there was a gentleman who was speaking before me who was what they call a distinguished engineer, right? A very senior guy. And he was talking about, what was it, security and uh, privacy, you know, in, in relation to technology. Anyway, gave a fairly typical presentation. And in it was these like seven dot points, which were like the crux of his presentation. And when I saw that, I thought, gee, this is an opportunity to see whether people remember this. So what happened is he came off stage and I went up to him and I said to him, you know, do you mind if I use your presentation? I want to make this point. And he's going, that sounds great. That's really interesting, <laughs> right? And uh, anyway, I get up there. I say to the audience, you know, Dan's just given his talk on, you know, technology and presentation, you know, technology and uh, privacy. Uh, does anyone remember two of the seven points? And there's like 200 people in the audience. There's nothing. You know, there's no, no recollection of these seven points. Or even two of them. Yeah, or two of them, right? And so, um, and I said to him, that's okay. And I, I asked him to remember something else out of his talk, which was a story he told. And this sea of hands just go straight up. Uh, but the thing is, the first time I told that, I forgot to mention the bit where I went up and asked him whether it was okay to tell his story. Right. Right. And when I told them, the audience looking at me and they were thinking, oh, God, you're an asshole. You know, <laughs> you know that, was, that was the sort of. You'll never work for them again. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And then I, I realized, oh, that's right. Well, you know, I forgot to tell that bit of the story, which enables you to tell that story. Right. So there's, there's things like that, which come from reading the audience in, and realizing that uh, actually you haven't told the full story or, you know, got enough sort of detail there for people to understand. Absolutely. Sean, I'm loving this, but uh, we're, we're going to have to wrap it up pretty soon, I'm afraid, or we'll have very few listeners still on the after the hour mark. 
Mate, I just want to run through a couple of the the big categories of, of stories that you'd like to talk about. The stories for connecting, uh, the stories for clarity, um, explaining something and demonstrating success. We've brushed up against a few of them. Do you want to just give a little bit of a highlights package of what those different categories are about? Sure, sure. So the stories for connecting, um, that's really about sharing a story so people get an insight into your character. Great for beginnings of presentations and things like that. So, you know, you stand up and you might tell a story about, you know, how you got to here. Actually, just that you're asking me about my experience with IBM, that was a connection story. The, um, uh, the clarity stories is all about answering the question, why? Why are we doing something? So this is great for strategies. It's great for change stories. You know, why are we doing this change? And, you know, the, the simple structure that you use there is, say, in the past it was like this, but then a bunch of things happened. And as a result of that, that's why we're doing this change or this strategy. So in the future it can be like that. You know, very basic narrative structure. The influence story is how you tackle stories in an organisation that's causing you pain. We call them anti-stories. So, you know, there might be an anti-story out there that's causing you pain. The, the key principle that we work by is you, you can't beat a story with fact. You can only beat a story with a better story. So it's a story versus story uh, exercise. And so the influence story pattern is about getting that story out first, then using your argument second. So we talked a little bit about that. And in fact, there's a little nuance you can put in there, which is really important, and that is... It's good to tell a negative story first because negative stories grab people's attention. When you hear a negative story, you go, oh, my God, you know, like, did that really happen? You know, you're sort of really concerned. But it doesn't actually tell you what to do to improve things, right? It just tells you what to avoid. Then you should follow that with a positive story of, you know, of it working. And then people go, oh, so that's how we can fix things. You know, if we can do more of that. Then you provide your rational and rationale and your, your logic and your argument, right? So negative story, positive story, double punch, if you like, then followed by the, the, the reasoning. And then the last one, success stories. Um, really, the way organisations tell success stories often are through case studies. And so they have these beautifully produced uh, on-paper case studies and they're in the format of, you know, this is the problem, this is the solution, and this is the great outcome, that we created. Unfortunately, they're really hard to tell in an oral story, right? So success stories is just a little simple method to turn that into something that, say, a salesperson could actually tell to a customer without just pushing over the, the you know, the, the one A4 sheet of paper that has the case study on it. Um, because it's the reason why you want to do that is so that they can tell that story internally themselves. Then they become an internal salesperson for you. So they're the four sort of basic patterns that we uh, share with people. But, you know, they don't, they don't make up by any means the majority of stories that you tell. The majority of stories are simply, oh, this happened yesterday. This is my point. Um, you know, this is the story I'm going to tell. I love it. I, I love those categories. I see so much use for them. And, and as you say, I see so many other different types of stories, anecdotes as you describe them. I particularly, for some reason, am drawn to that story of clarity, the, the use of it for explaining a strategy. We have all come across so many strategy documents that are too boring to read. It's, it's impossible for me as a lover of literature to get past the first page on most strategy documents, and I learn nothing from them. I yeah. love your, your way of, of structuring that. So you say that we used to do it this way, but then this happened, whether it was this issue or a GFC or a new technology or some great opportunity. So now we're going to do things this way so that our future can be like this. Wow. Yeah. If, if that is what strategy documents look like, then when you ask people in a team or a leadership workshop, hey, what's your strategy? They might actually be able to answer the question. That's right. You know what's holding a lot of organisations back is that they, they're conflating strategic planning or the planning process with strategy development, Yeah. right, as if they're the same thing. But they're not. Strategy development should be around making choices that are solving problems, Yeah. right? What are the big problems or opportunities that your company is facing? What are the choices? And they have to be real choices. I, I talk about uh, something I call the Costanza manoeuvre, right? So George Costanza in one of the Seinfeld episodes works at it. Everything he does is wrong. And, but if he just did the opposite. I remember that episode. Everything, remember that episode? Yeah. Anyway, everything goes well. So, 
the same is true with strategies. You have to have a real opposite, right? So uh, when people come and say things to me like, oh, yeah, we have this strategy. We're going we're gonna to focus on our people. That's going to be one of our strategic choices. And I say, well, let's just check this, right, with the Costanza manoeuvre. Uh, what's the opposite of that? We're not going to focus on our people. You're going to ignore is that our a real? Is that our real choice? Like is that a real obvious choice? No, it's not. So that's not a strategy. I mean, that's just business as usual. This is what you're going to be doing. You're going to be looking after your people. So what's it like, you know, we're going to move overseas or we're not going to move overseas. We're going to go through a distributed model or we're not going to do a distributed model. Are we going to, you know, like there's lots of lots of choices businesses have to make, right? And the, the reason I say all that is that when there's a choice, then there's a story to tell because people know, then ask, why are we making that choice? Right. And I think that's the, for me, that makes good storytelling as well as good business. I love it, Sean. And as much as this conversation has been enthralling and informative and entertaining, I, I do suggest that people grab your book and read right through it because there are just so many stories and you do an awesome job of doing what you're preaching that other people do. You give us some great structure and information and you tell endless stories to help us understand that and remember it. I, I have the feeling that I'm going to remember more about what I've read in your book than I will about most books that I read because there are just so many great stories that illustrate every point. Hey, before we wrap up, I want you to tell us a little bit about Sean Callahan, the businessman. Anecdote, your aptly named organization, is a thriving business. You're all around the country. You're all around the world. You've got outposts in different capital cities across the globe. Tell us a little bit about that and, and what's your future? Well, yeah, we, we more or less started off as a consulting company, right? And we had this idea that we were just, as all consulting companies do, is you build your company by adding consultants, yeah, we were interested in this little niche, you know, like the niche of story, oral story, not just storytelling, but oral storytelling, you know, a niche within a niche. Um, so as we built our consultants, there just wasn't the demand in Australia for what we did uh, to use that model. So we changed our model and we sort of said, okay, what if we become intellectual property sort of creators around training programs and then we license our, our programs to other companies around the world? So we sort of switched the model totally and it's kind of like takes advantage of the long tail. You think about it, the number of small businesses out there, millions and millions of them in that long tail, but they're all looking for good ways, good methodologies, and so we can sell to those guys as our conduit. And they're still working with big corporates like we are. So our business is primarily around this network of partners that we have. Uh, so we now uh, deliver our programs in just over 20 countries, uh, in six different languages, and 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 it all comes down to this great partner network that we have. Great people who are highly experienced to um, to to deliver good uh, storytelling training, so people can do this. And we do it around two areas: it's either storytelling for leaders or storytelling for sales. You know, help sales forces or work with leaders. So that's what it's become. And that's such a fantastic business model. And I get the impression from our short relationship that you conduct yourself in business the same way you conduct yourself as a storyteller and a writer and the way you conduct yourself on the phone when you're just having a chat. You seem like a very authentic person. The same Sean appears everywhere through your life. Yeah, well, I haven't worked out any other way. So that's uh, just how it works, I think, David. So uh you know, you can bend and twist yourself to be one thing or another, but at the end of the day, um, that's kind of like a hard way to live, isn't it? So uh, I find this way, this straight, straight is easy. All right. Now, Sean, I always finish my interviews by asking the same four questions of my guests. Are you ready? They're, they're, really, they're really tough questions. I think they're, okay. they're going to knock you around a bit. Right, yeah. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to. Is it a big party? with lots of people you know, or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? Yeah, I'm more of an intimate dinner sort of guy. You know, get a bunch of friends around, you know, hear the latest of what's going on, uh, hear about their travels, etc. To me, that's an ideal Saturday night. Got one of those coming up tomorrow night. Lovely. All right, are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Yeah, unfortunately, the latter. Caught yep. daydreaming. Daydreaming, yes. I'll um, and my business partner knows this all too well. Um, 
uh, invariably be thinking of the next thing to do while we haven't quite executed on the thing that we're currently doing. So, um, you know, that's always happens. But, you know, I get excited by things, David. I just can't, can't help it. I see something and I go, wow, that could be good. And like is, podcasting. Is Mark <laughs> a good man to balance you there? Is he a detail fellow? Uh, well, he's the perfect man for me in terms of, um, you know, balance. I wouldn't say he's a detail, for, you know, he's not a real specific detail, but Mark is the managing director of Anecdote and he keeps things ticking along, you know, perfectly in the direction it needs to go. So I'm very lucky in that sense. Very good. Now, what about the way you make decisions? Are you a slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on emotion? Well, Mark and I... Um, actually have a way of talking about decision-making because we, we do it quite differently. We call it uh, loose string, tight string, right? Uh, so when I ask Mark for a decision, he's loose string. He'll go, oh, well, maybe we can do this, maybe we can do that. And eventually his string tightens up. I'm the opposite. He'll ask me, what do you think about that? And I go, oh, we've got to do this. This is the way it goes, right? And, um, and then he has to loosen me up, you know, to sort of see a different perspective. Different so, options. Yeah, so that's that would be the way I'd, I'd describe our decision-making approach. And very last question, Sean, you're going on a road trip. Do you like to book the hotels, plan the route, and know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? Yeah, I'm a, a, in the car and drive, yep. Never know what might happen along the road. That's the, that's the exciting bit. That's where the good stories happen, surely, <laughs> you know? They sure are. Sean Callahan. you have been so generous with your time. I have loved every second of our chat. It's been absolutely enthralling. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure, David. It's, it's, it's been great fun. Thanks a lot. And that was Sean Callahan. After reading his book and chatting to him for the podcast, communication, especially in a business setting, will never be the same for me again. I feel as though I'm now in a position to notice and discover the stories that are all around me and how they can impact the quality of my communication. I intend to follow the advice Sean gave me to help me remember those stories. And then, of course, take the brave step of sharing them, stepping into a neglected world and using stories to flavour the things I have to say. And I hope, oh, how I hope, that I have the awareness to detect through the reaction of the people I talk to how my stories are being received. Which ones are effective? How should I change and refresh them? And indeed, which ones should I dump? If Sean got you interested in the art of storytelling during this episode, I highly recommend you pick up a copy of his book. It is such a fantastic read. He makes an incredibly strong case for sharing stories and he outlines the different types of stories that we can tell. And he provides a foolproof process that we can all follow in our quest to become better storytellers. But most of all, of course, his book is laced with brilliant, meaningful stories, some of which I might just borrow for my own use. I'll provide a link to where you can find Sean and where you can pick up a copy of his book on the podcast page for this episode. I will also as always, share the lessons I took from today's chat. You'll find it all on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud. Like, share, subscribe, comment. It all helps find us new listeners. That's all for this episode. I look forward to your company next time. My name is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.